Sessions, which is a series we started several months ago. And today we're going to take uh, an, an interesting shift here. So we spent uh, the, the past few months looking at two very big ideas. Uh, the first was the love that Jesus has for us and what that should cause us to be and become and do. The second was the fact that Paul connects this amazing love that Jesus has for us to the fact that he is, he is also our Lord. So one of the reasons Jesus can love us and one of the reasons we can tap into all those amazing promises that he offers us, his hope, his joy, his peace, is because he is Lord. So without him being Lord, we actually cannot at all, um, he can't deliver on those promises without him being our Lord. So we spent a few, a few weeks, about a month, talking about what his lordship is. And then uh, we're going to move today into another shift that Paul takes in this uh, second chapter of Philippians. And that is this idea of working out our salvation uh, with fear and, and trembling. It's another lordship idea. Uh, we're going to talk about change today, life change, or at least for the next few weeks. And our life change, just to kind of bridge the gap here, our ability to change in Christ is directly connected to the fact that he is a God who says he can bring change about in our lives. He is the Lord of change. And so that's why recognizing his lordship is, is important. And so this week I did a little research, and this is not in-depth research, but nonetheless it's pretty common research, on a question that seems to be ingrained in the human psyche. And it's a question that I've asked myself. Uh, it's a question I will likely ask myself again. And I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that there is not a single person in this room or a single person who you know that has not asked themselves this question. What is the question you might ask? If, if you were given the opportunity to do so, what, what would you change about yourself? Uh, that question typically calls to mind a, a list of things a person would like to or maybe would even wish to change about themselves. When we look at our lives, we think, you know, here's where I'm at today and here's where I'd like to be tomorrow. That's change. Now, the more common responses to that question are these. They almost always revolve around relationships, whether that is our relationship with ourselves or the people or with the Lord, for those of us that are believers, uh, the, the ideas are something like this. They go like this. You know, I wish that I could love others more deeply. Um, or maybe we have a hard time being loved. So some people might say, you know, I'm just kind of calloused and cold and I can't let people in. I'd like to change it about myself. For some of us, um, we might have very, very deep symptomatic problems. Like, for example, we might say, I walk around my life in a perpetual state of stress or I'm always angry, or I can't seem to shake this bitterness, or maybe just looking at the overarching concept of Philippians, here I am a person who says that I love Jesus, and Jesus says not only does he promise me his joy, but he says my joy is in you. It's kind of like it's, it's already there. We have to figure out what's damming it up and keeping us from experiencing it. We might say, you know what, I just want to be joyful again. Or maybe for us, it's, it's the way we view our, our external relationships, how we relate to others. We might say things like, you know, I'd like to be a better husband. I'm more patient with my wife and my children, or I want to be uh, a more committed father, or maybe, you know, the other side of the spectrum, I, I want to be a more committed wife or mother, I, I want to be a better friend, I realize in my life that I'm not reliable, or I want to be a harder worker. I mean, there, there is no end to these, to these lists of things that we can often look at ourselves, uh, th this, this lens, and say, hey, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like this to be different to me. So no matter what the reason is, and I suspect every, every one of us, truly, if we are healthy human beings, when we say, what would we like to change, there probably should be some things that we would like to change. Because to say nothing likely means we have stagnated our growth as, as a person, as, as people. No matter what the reason is, people are generally wired to want to change and grow in life. And there's a, re a reason for that. Um, if you understand the way God has hardwired humanity, he has created us to change and grow. This is, you know, if you look at the spiritual principle here, to be in Jesus, to find life in Jesus, means it's the perpetual pursuit of growing and changing in Jesus, becoming more like him. 
And so no matter what area of life it is in, whether we do not know God and just want to be better people, or we do know God and want to be a better person relating to the image of Jesus, no matter what way you look at it, change and growth are essential for people and societies to flourish. So today, with that in mind, we're going to look at an often misunderstood verse where Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And this is a teaching about how life change happens. That's simply put. If you want to know the the synonym of this statement is how life change happens. And it's written about in many places in Scripture because change is such an important part of our lives. Now, with that said, um, before we proceed, and I'm just going to warn you, I'm going to literally say this exact same thing again next week because it's so important to grasp. Before we proceed, I want to be super clear about what this verse is and isn't teaching. Uh, First, Paul isn't teaching that we have to do anything to earn uh, salvation. This is one of the great misunderstandings and at times even abuses that this verse has produced. Jesus's gift of grace showed to us on the cross is what ultimately establishes the ground upon which redemption or salvation in Jesus is is built. So and I'm going to kind of explain this here in a moment. But you have to know right away when Paul says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he is not at all saying you have to do something to make Jesus love you, because the truth is we can't make Jesus love us. Jesus just loves us. And that's the beauty of his love. It's not merited or earned. It is truly benevolently distributed to us, given to us as a gift. Now, that fact, coupled with the reality that this this reading, this verse, to to read this verse that way, it's inconsistent with every other teaching in Scripture that Jesus offers, uh, that talks about the offer of of Jesus' salvation. You can't take this verse and make it say something that the rest of the Bible does not say. That's one big important thing to know here. So I guess what I, what I want to say here is kind of a summary is we could and should refer to this as Jesus's salvation. When we talk about this side of the fence, we're talking about his role and responsibility in our lives. He is the author of salvation, the perfecter, the finisher of it. Okay. First, we don't do anything to earn God's love. Secondly, Paul is saying, though, rather pointedly, this is where the tension comes into play. That word work often hangs people up. Paul is saying rather pointedly that we have to do something about our salvation. And the key word here is our salvation. And this is the distinction, the two poles that will help us to kind of function from as we move forward with this. This distinction between what Jesus did and what we do in light of what he did is saying that those who have been given the gift of salvation, right? To work out your salvation with fear and trembling means you've already been granted the gift of salvation. It's already in you. You cannot earn that. But now that it is in you, Paul is saying we have a responsibility to care for our own spiritual welfare, to to invest in that, to, in other places, he talks about uh, making a substantial or meaningful deposit in what Jesus has done in our lives, guarding it. It's, it's like nurturing and developing an amazing gift that somebody has given you. We have to work out our salvation, is what he says. They have to practice their faith in a way that validates that, that we actually have one. So think of it like this. Let me give you an analogy. Let's just say, uh, I don't know, you move to the area and you really need a car, but you have no capability of providing yourself one. You do not have the, the time, the effort, or the resources to do it. And it's not because you're not a competent person. It's just that you can't, you can't provide a car for yourself. You don't have the means to afford it. So then out of the goodness and generosity of, of an, another person walks up to you, and out of the goodness and generosity of their heart, they just give you a car. You did not earn it. You could not pay for it. They just straight up gave it to you. They said, I see this need in your life, and I want you to know that I'm going to meet it. There's no strings attached to the gift itself. However, they charge you with one important task when it comes to the gift they've given you. This is sort of what Paul is, is getting at here. They say, listen, this car is yours but I just need you to take care of it. 
Because the reality is, if you take a gift and you don't take care of it, in this illustration, the car, then what happens is you can, you can neglect that thing to a point to where it's just ruined. You know, if you left your car in your front yard or you never, ever changed the oil or never took care of it or you had these crazy squeaking noises going on it and belts are breaking, eventually that amazing gift that somebody gave you out of the sacrificial generosity of their heart becomes a piece of junk that can no longer be used. It's ruined to a certain degree. You still have the car in your front yard. It's just not nearly, the car is not nearly what it was meant to be. This is kind of the idea of what we're talking about here. You cannot earn the love of Jesus, but you can so neglect the salvation that he puts in your life, the the grace that he shows you, that it becomes like a clunky gift. It has nothing to do with the gift giver. It just has to do with the fact that we don't really care enough about the gift to invest in it and take care of it. And so if you're here today wishing that you could be different in an area of your life, but you have yet to experience change, I'd like to challenge you to ask God, what, what is keeping this from happening? Because the, the, the impetus behind a verse like this assumes it's happening. I'm not saying that it's happening perfectly. I'm not saying that it, it's, you know, it's like a greased pipe in life where we just see what we need to be, and then all of a sudden we become that. There is a process here. That's the working out. But nonetheless, a lot of us go through life functioning with this understanding that we can't change. And I think that the Scripture teaches us pretty clearly we should have a different kind of hope in the fact that we can because our ultimate rest is in the giver of the gift, Jesus. So a teaching like today shows us if you're in Christ, life change is possible. In fact, it's the promise mark of the transforming power of Jesus we call sanctification. He says once this gift is in you, change should be happening. And so I hope you'll see over these next weeks that while the ultimate power for life change is found in Jesus' salvation— The author, perfecter, and completer of our faith is Jesus. This verse explicitly teaches us that there are also things, Scripture teaches us, we should be working out on earth. There are things under heaven that also lead us to that same end. And when these two things are working in tandem with each other, something pretty powerful happens. Jesus begins to manifest himself in our lives. And this really leads us to the first truth I want to share with you today. And over these next weeks, we're going to take this concept because Paul mentions it very quickly. We're going to take this concept and refer to other places in his writing and other places in Scripture that give us detail about what that work actually looks like. That's why we read a verse from Philippians and Ephesians. In the same way, when we looked at authority, we looked at verses from Philippians and Jesus' words himself in the Gospel of John. So the first thing I want to share with you today is this. The first step in experiencing any kind of life change in your heart, it begins by taking a serious look at your mind. This is one of the core elements that we read about in Scripture. Addressing the heart and the mind are the two channels, if you will, that God works through to bring about change in our lives. And I'll just reiterate what was already read in Ephesians 4.17. Paul says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And the word Gentile is a synonym for unbelief. We'll get to that here in a second. But there's this key statement that is given to us that talks about thinking about what we think about. Because what we think about often shapes what we do and how we act. It shapes the heart. The thoughts shape deeds. All throughout the scripture, it's clear that the gateway to lasting life change in your heart begins with examining the way you think. This has to be a normal process in our lives if we want change. And I love the force that Paul uses here. You've got two very, very strong statements in two different writings to two different churches, right? Uh, Philippi here and and here uh, Ephesus. And what he's he's doing is he's giving us some pretty forceful commands. In Philippians, he says, listen, if you know the love of Jesus and you see him as Lord, then, then work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Those are the three, the three declarative statements that he gives us in that whole second chapter. And today we're looking at working out salvation with fear and trembling. In Ephesians, he, insi- he is, insists 
with the full weight of like the resurrected Jesus, that one of the ways we work at our salvation is by, by thinking about things that God puts on our hearts and in our mind. And what both these passages show us is that when, when a person truly finds Jesus, I mean, not perfectly, but you find Jesus, like he's genuinely in you, God immediately enables a way of thinking in our minds that allows us to see and understand life the way God does. You don't perfectly see or understand life the way God does. But to have the power of Jesus' presence in your life through his Holy Spirit means God, it's like what Paul said, scales fall away. And you now have the capability to think in ways that you could not think prior to knowing Christ. And that thinking is supposed to lead us to working some of these things out. From the moment that we receive salvation, we, we acknowledge what Jesus has done for us. We, we say, you know, I don't fully get you, but I know that I kind of love you and I want to follow you. It's as if God turns on a Jesus light switch. He activates a part of your soul that has been dormant in your heart and in your mind. And this is the beginning of the lifelong process of him teaching us to see our lives, the world, our relationships, everything that matters to God and us through his, his eyes. And so this is a new way of thinking. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. It's, it's usually going to stand in sharp contrast to the often darkened and futile thinking of the Gentile or unbelieving world. And this isn't a knock against the unbelieving world. It's just saying the priority scheme is going to change. To believe in Jesus pushes you down a certain pathway in life. To live without Jesus pushes you down a certain pathway in life. And so th there is a contrast here in, in, in recognizing that. There is an awareness, if you will, that God activates in us. It is something God first gives us in his grace, but then calls us to work out in our lives. So think of it this way. When God opens your mind to his ways, he, he expects you to begin the process of rethinking how you see what he's talking to you about. And please hear me here. I'm just going to say this again so I can't be misquoted. Neither Paul or any other element of Scripture is saying that, that life change alone comes by relying on your ability to think through matters alone. That actually removes Jesus from the equation. That's a problem. We can't think our ways into the kingdom. We, however, can think our way. We, we can have God show us something and think about it to the place where God then begins to use our thoughts and our actions and our heart attitudes to bring about that change. True life change happens because of Jesus. But our role in it is actually taking seriously the fact that he's speaking to us and highlighting these things in our lives. That's the nature of relationship. He cares enough about us to actually care enough about us. That said, the, the Bible's trying to say Jesus will never bring about a life change in us until we are honest enough with him and ourselves to admit that there are places that we need to grow in our life. And maybe I should rephrase that and say it's pretty rare. I'm not saying that there are not times that God will break himself into your life. I don't know that that's always the best scenario, though. I think the best scenario, though, is that as we pursue God as Father and Father, and the Father pursues us as his, his beloved children, that there's a, there's a dialogue as he speaks to us. We, we try to pursue that and understand it. It's different, I think. Think about the parenting paradigm. You know, it, it's one thing when you, like, get up in the mix of your kids in the front yard because they're about to run in the street and get hit by a car. As a parent, we have to do that sometimes. That, that's a pretty intrusive way of dealing with, with causing our children to think about something. However, it's much better if, if our children hear our words and understand that there's, there's something different about the way they have to act in the street because it can be very dangerous. That, I think, is the ideal in the way God wants to bring change about in our lives. But there are times in his grace where he will grab us by the shirt collar and yank us out of the street. Not the desired way, but often a, a way he can use, right? So here, the, the, the thing I want to push by thinking is that we have to get comfortable 
at a place in our lives where we know that we need to grow and where we are aware of the fact and are comfortable with making conscious and concrete decisions in God's grace to work our salvation out in those areas. I mean, think about this, just practically speaking. This is a very strong biblical wisdom here, but you don't even have to believe in the Jesus of the Bible to affirm the, the truth of this statement. Have you ever met a person, if you go to any kind of uh, psychology or sociological counseling, you'll, you'll never sit across the desk from somebody that says, if you want to see a change in your life, you have to first acknowledge there's a bit of a problem. Have you ever met a person who uh, suffered from extreme stress or anger, who became a less stressful or angry person without actually recognizing that's an issue? If not, you just think being angry or stressed is the norm, and you, you, you think your life in this way. That's the way you see the world. Or a person who couldn't be honest enough to admit to the Lord that they lost their joy. For a person who is in the Christian camp, um, who says, listen, I love Jesus, but, but I, I just don't know where my joy is gone. I just feel like numb or cold to him. You, you cannot have a, a joy restored if you're not first aware of the fact that you might actually be functioning without it. Have you ever seen a person seriously address an issue of Christian ethics in their life? Let's say in the area of truthfulness or reliability, who was either unaware of the problem in their own life or kind of when we go back to the, the teachings we had with Lordship, maybe they were aware of it, but they just paid it no mind. Like they know they're not reliable and they just say, you know what, uh, I know you've thrown this switch in my life, God, but I'm just going to shut that switch down because I don't really want to mess with this right now. And what happens is, is you, you just, this is that dialogue thing. You're like, God, I know I'm not reliable and people can't trust me, but oh well, I'm going to move on. That's a problem. You can't change. Of course you can't change like this. You can't experience change in those areas of your life because we're either unaware of it or, or, or we are aware of it and, and don't, don't really care. We, we choose to, using Paul's language, both verses, we choose to not work our salvation out in places God shows us, or we choose to, to remain in the futility of darkness. We, we disconnect ourselves from God's love and light in those matters. And so, you see, once, once your mind is shown how to think like God, in whatever area of life this is, whether it is a physical reality or a spiritual reality or an ethical reality or an emotional reality, when God brings to the table a thought, what he wants us to do is in his strength and in his grace to deal with the thought. And once you grow in your knowledge, and remember, this goes back to a whole talk we had on knowledge, not just the accumulation of information about what God is or who he is or what he says, but the actual heart-deep recognition of what he says. Once you grow in your knowledge and intimacy of who God is, we begin to know him through prayer and through the word and through the church community. What happens is you begin to understand how God wants to reshape your life in certain areas. Once he does that, we should desire, deeply desire, to examine those areas with our mind, to examine the existing thought process he wants us to look at, to put our opinions and preferences on the table in light of God's epiphany in our lives. This is the reality of what Paul's saying here. If he says, hey, you're a grumpy person, then we need to ask the question, why are we grumpy? That's what it means to, to analyze our thoughts and our process. Why are we so grumpy? Why am I so unreliable? Why am I unable to see reality in my life? Whatever it is, right? The summation of this teaching goes like this. Even though God is the ultimate author of your salvation and my salvation, you'll never be a new creation in Jesus until you wrestle with the old you. You will be redeemed. You'll get the car, if you will. But you'll never take the time to care for the car in such a way that, that you are actually growing and driving towards the destination of sanctification, the image of Jesus in your life. You'll never experience lasting life change until you want to work that out. In the areas of your life God calls your attention to and opens your mind to, 
whether you like what he's showing you or not, if we do not desire that, then then we are likely in or migrating towards being in a really bad place as a person who claims that they love Jesus. And how you might ask? Well, we're claiming to follow God as Lord, key, key theme in what we've talked about, but we're actually beginning to live as if we are God. What happens in this paradigm is that if we get to the place where we can ignore God's voice when he shows us things, then it means we're becoming hard to who God is. We're kind of becoming blinded to the presence of his salvation in our lives. It's, it's kind of like we've been given the gift, but we're acting like we don't have it. And over time, what happens is that tends to create a person in the Christian world who lives more like themselves and less like Jesus. And the truth is, is you change. Absolutely. You start becoming something different than what you are today. But it is very likely that it might be in some ways that are not good. Because to be a believer means we want to be more like Christ. And so he should be the end game of what we're migrating towards. This is a talk, or this idea of working out salvation, is really, uh, it's a statement that talks about how we act and how we behave. But it is worth noting, even though Paul is teaching on life change here, he doesn't mention any particular behaviors yet. This is very true to what we talked about in James last week, and I, I hope you see the kind of systematic nature of the way people who get Jesus teach about Jesus. They don't start with the to-do list. They start with the nature of who we are first. Our identity in Christ shapes what we do for him. And so here we're beginning to, we, we have this strong teaching on identity, on the love of Jesus in us, and the nature of us, of him being our Lord. We, we talk at length about who Jesus is in our lives before we even begin to talk about what he then requires of, of those who, who have him in our lives. And this is one of those places in Scripture where I would argue pretty emphatically that silence says more to us than words could ever when it comes to change. And here's why. You don't need to be a church historian to see that in the, the past century, especially in, in Western or North American Christianity, there are a lot of streams of thinking in the church that have been inclined to teach a verse, a verse like this by dealing with the change part first. We, as opposed, to, they, they literally start with the to-do list and skip over the author of change, Jesus. And immediately you get handed these bullet point lists of all the things that, that the Bible says we should be doing if we are redeemed. You skip over Jesus if you want to change. And what happens is the, the core of what life change looks like in a person's life, or at least the way we're instructed to approach it, it goes something like this. Well, the Bible says you should live like this, so then just go do that. And what happens is we, we, we meet in a room like this and you get told a bunch of things you're supposed to do and you leave thinking like, well, there are some of those things I really want to do, but I just don't have it in me to do it right now. This creates the problem of behavioral management, which is a subject we've talked about in here before. This, this is a problem and it is a very common way, both in the church at times and frankly, outside of the church. It's how we change. It's how we attempt to change people. It's the, the, the particular term that I like to use here is it's what we call bootstrap theology. It's pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and change. And the problem with that is that it's very difficult and sometimes just flat out impossible for a change like that to stick. So as we study the idea of change over these next weeks, I want to make sure we know that seeking life change like that, it is frankly going to be the easiest, it, it appears, let me put it this way, to be the easiest way to bring change about in your life. How wonderful it, would, it, would it be if I could just, like you say, uh, Pastor Anthony, I am an, uh, uh, I'm a very uh, jealous person. And I hand you, I say, tomorrow I will email you three things to make you an unjealous person. Do this, this, and this. And then by Monday at three, it's all taken care of, right? You can see why we want the bullet point list. We want the, we want the salvation element without the working it out in the middle of that. 
But that's the challenge here is life change doesn't usually come around that way. It requires us to deeply examine in God's grace our, our, our hearts and our minds and to ask questions beneath the questions. Not just how do I not be jealous, but why am I jealous? This is the root of how we start to understand who God is in our lives. Our identity in him shapes our deeds. And if you want the simple answer to jealousy, the simple answer is we should be jealous of no one or anything because the God of the universe says, I, I love you. In fact, there are places in Scripture where, where he is jealous of us because we pursue and love things more than him. You don't need to be jealous of anything else when you recognize the fact that you have a great creator who lavishes his love upon you. You frankly can't be jealous about anything else because you've got the greatest gift the world has ever known. So I want to make sure as we talk about this, we don't move forward and just think we gotta, we got to change deeds. Because I guarantee you that that is just dealing with the symptom of a problem and not the problem itself. And let me give you a metaphor for this. So uh, imagine, if you will, you and your family are, are you, you want to go on a vacation, right? We're just off the summer. So vacations are fresh in our minds. And some of us are thinking like, I wish I could go back to two months ago and go back on vacation, right? Because the, the other 50 weeks of the world of the uh, 51 weeks of the, the calendar year is set in. And so vacation is like a time of rest and leisure. And let's just say you decide you want to go, I don't know, to this place you've never been before and you want a vacation in the mountains. And you, you have to find somebody to help you figure that out. So you find a travel agent or a, a local office there. If you've traveled the state of Florida or the country, you know there's often a place in an area that manages a tons of properties for you to rent for a couple of weeks and go on vacation. So you find one of those places and uh, you, you pick up the phone and you try to make reservations. And every time you call, the people, uh, sometimes they pick the phone up. Sometimes they don't pick the phone up. Uh, sometimes they pick the phone up and they take your name and number and they say they're going to call you back, but they never do. And so you're calling and you're leaving messages. And finally, you realize, like, I am supposed to go on vacation in a month and I do not have this place booked yet. If I don't get this squared away, I'm not going on vacation. And so you uh, you figure out a way to, to, to get in touch with the office again. Maybe let's just say this is a local place and you actually go into the office, right? Maybe it's a national chain and you're talking to a place here about a place in Wyoming. And you go into the office and you notice something pretty crazy. You see that there are tons of people working hard. Phones are ringing off the hook. People are picking up stuff. You've got some desks that are empty. Folks are writing down notes. Everybody seems to be pretty competent in the office. But there is a big challenge here. All those competent people keep running to the back of the office, handing the manager all these pieces of paper. And that's when you begin to see that there's, a, there's an entirely different story going on in this office. You see right away, it's not necessarily the people working that are the problem. You're dealing with a, a person who's a pretty poor office manager. He's yelling at people. All the employees are being screamed at. Folks are walking around like they're standing on eggshells. He's, he's taking papers and throwing them here and there, filing stuff erratically, clearly mishandling all the information. And everything the employees are doing, they're having to run through him. He's a mess. And you start realizing why you call so-and-so on the phone and then so-and-so never gets back with you because there's this bottleneck in the office. No one can do their job properly because of it. Now, in this situation, you've got two options and how you fix the problem. You can, I think, rather unwisely keep calling Linda or John and complaining that you, they're not returning your calls. You can talk to the employees in that situation. But the truth of the matter is, is that's, that's a symptom of a deeper issue. It's not the employees. They're highly competent. Or you can wisely recognize you need to confront the office manager because the office manager is the person setting the pace for the office. The employees aren't the problem. They're really the symptom of a much deeper managerial problem. Dealing with the employees just exhausts you and it changes nothing. You can complain to every person every hour and loop it over again and nothing's going to change. This is how a lot of Christians understand change in their life. 
they believe that, that the, the Christian life change or behavior is really just a matter of getting your body to stop doing certain things and to start doing other things. In this case, you, you get all those people to, um, to, to start doing what you ask them to do. But the problem is they're already doing what you're asking them to do. The issue is not in stopping and starting something here. The issue is much, much, much deeper. And so the way this works in our world, when we talk about some of the normal behaviors we struggle with, the attitudes, the, the Bible says something like, or, or at least in the teaching climate, the Bible says, listen, you, you shouldn't stress, so therefore, why are you stressing? Just stop stressing. It's like some Jamaican island philosophy. Don't worry, man. No thing to worry about. But you're like, no, lots of things to worry about. I'm still freaking out. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make any change. The, the reality of what you should do and what's happening is different. Or, you know, in a talk, maybe it's not said this this tersely, but the reality of it is like this. It's like, you know, Scripture says be anxious of nothing. So there you go. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> and you go to lunch and turn your nose because you don't know how to pay for it. You know? there's, a, there's a problem here. The action is disconnected from the reality of what we feel about the action. For some people, that might work for a season. For many, it doesn't work at all. Why? Because living like this in Christianity is the equivalent of doing business with, with office assistants rather than the root of the problem, the manager. And in our world, the, the manager is the heart. The manager is the mind. The, the behavior just flows out of it, whatever it is. It's a symptom of a much deeper issue. And in this case, when it comes to stress and anxiety, the, the roots of these issues are that we often wonder whether or not God really is serious when he says that he loves us and he has our best interests at heart and he is in control of our lives. That's the truth you've got to start thinking about. You've got to start working that out. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. When God says, don't stress because I've got your life in my hand, the working the salvation part out is really wrestling with the fact in our head and hearts of why God says that, but we can't believe it. That is why true, and that is how true and lasting life change happens. And so later on in Philippians, Paul will give us some of the life change credentials that should be present in a person who has experienced salvation in Jesus. And I would say, ultimately, this is, a, this is joy. If you want to know how you're joyful in Christ, one of, the, one of the ways is you're living like Jesus. And it's funny that after this section, he's going to go right on and tell us things like, no matter what you do, don't grumble, don't complain. He gets to a pretty strong like duty list, if you will. But preceding the duty list is something far more important. He, right now, he's much more concerned with us understanding the root those characteristics stem from. And it is truly the gift Jesus has given you. So the true authority for change is in Christ's grace. And that's what you have to press into. How do you become something you cannot be? You realize that Jesus can make you something you cannot be. You rest in his strength and you work towards that end. So if you want to work out your salvation and experience life change, you must let Jesus reshape your mind. You must let him renew your mind in a way that, that causes you to think like Jesus. You've got to embrace the mind of Christ. That's what Romans teaches us. Transformation and renewal happen by meditating on the things Jesus has said and done and letting the power of his spirit bring those things to fruition and reality in our heart. You have to start seeing life like he does. But you never will see life like he does if you don't care enough to work towards that end or open your mind to the place where he can speak to your life, into your life. So the change process begins when you make a commitment to deeply think about your life. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. Life change begins by thinking about what God is showing you. That's where it starts. Hey, you're a stressful person. Why? Hey, you're an anxious person. Why? Hey, you're unreliable. Why? That's the beginning. God speaks to you. But it actually begins to happen when you make the decision to let Jesus renew your mind. And that is a different thing. They're kind of cousins here. One is God's, is God's ability and our willingness to hear from God. The other is then to say, you know what, God? You're right. I, I am a stressed person. And I don't know why. I need renewal in this area. Let's work this out. 
working out your salvation with fear and trembling is is sort of like if you think of it this way it's like being a christian and pursuing a degree at christ's college or jesus's college uh, so it's it's an it's an eternal and never ending um relationship where we sit before the throne of our king who is merciful and gracious and gr- and awesome and loves us, and he speaks into our lives. It, it's, it's the true rabbi-disciple relationship. That's what we're going to talk about right now. That's what renewal is. The main difference, though, if, if you think about this, let's just use the context of a college degree. The main difference is, unlike our earthly degrees, you know, you remember, remember when you were in school and you're like, this is going to be the worst semester ever. I'm taking, like, all my electives. Do you remember? I don't know if you've ever done that, where you take 12 hours of, like, basket weaving or something, and you're like, man, school would be awesome if I could, like, take all, like, I can write a two-page paper on why volleyball matters. Remember those days? You, you, you do that. Not that volleyball isn't great, but those electives, we, we like them. And oftentimes in school, I can remember I take like three or four really hard classes and then I take one elective. One thing that I just I knew I would love studying at the expense of some things that I maybe did not want to study as much, but I knew they were beneficial for me. Right? I had to get those those credits to be able to become what I wanted to be. So in, in here's the difference here. In Jesus's college, you're, you're guaranteed to be forced to study some stuff that you wouldn't necessarily want to study apart from God's leading. And this is the reality of renewal. Um, pursuing Jesus in our paradigm here is not just about life change electives. It's not just about all the stuff you're interested in. Um, God is deeply concerned with causing us to study the core curriculums of life. And this is part of what Paul is getting at in the command to work our salvation out with fear and trembling. So let let me explain. There's no doubt that as we examine uh, what God shows us and we let him renew our minds, much of life change, it's going to be things that we desire. Like, who's going to argue like God wants us to not be anxious? Who's going to dispute that? Nobody. God wants us to be less stressed. God wants us to feel loved. There, There is no person in their sane mind. This is kind of what the authority teaching was about. That could look at the things that Jesus offers us in relationship and say, I don't want that. Many of the things God will want to work out in our lives are going to be things we appreciate. And you could even see this in the unbelieving world. In today's culture, there are tons of people who would never step foot in a church or proclaim Jesus as Savior, but they truly, truly think like the way Jesus cared for the oppressed or the hurting is, is amazing. They, they will not disagree with half of his teachings on how you, how you care for your neighbor or the hurting. We like those things. There are electives we really like about Jesus. That said, letting Jesus renew our mind at, at his college is, is also filled with some curriculum items that we might not want to be as inclined to study. So, for instance, many of those same people who will deeply value Jesus' worldview on social matters will then totally ignore the fact that he's also God. Because he says that too. That's that whole Lord, liar, lunatic thing, right? Many of those same people, even in the Christian world, they'll say, it is amazing that Jesus has cared for the oppressed. But they might be less happy when they realize, like, oh, man, in Jesus' absence, um, he actually says, now I have to care for the hurting. I have to be an emotional and spiritual and physical support for people who have need. I actually have to sacrifice sometimes from my plenty and sometimes from what I don't even have to be something for the people. Like the, the economy that God now gives us is these things we love about Jesus are now rhythms displayed in our lives. And that is where elective moves to core curriculum. And that's where it might become a problem. We get a final exam, we feel like we might flunk. So one of the marks that you're working out your salvation is when you give Jesus the freedom to renew every area of your life. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm just saying the default posture of our heart should be God, I'm going to let you speak to me in all the areas that you want to speak to me about. Not just the areas you like or agree with him on. 
When it comes to life change, it's guaranteed God has much deeper aspirations for what that means than, than you and I do. Think about that. God has greater hopes for your life and mine than, he, than I do, and than you do. And he's certainly concerned with helping us with our stress and anxiety and emotions, with making us better husbands or wives, friends and workers, whatever it is. But the way he intends to make those changes is not by treating the weed. Rather, he will look to pull the root, which is the renewing of our minds. He's going to create a deeper awareness of his ways in our lives. And change like that doesn't just happen overnight. But when it does happen, it really happens. And it can be painful because it means that God intends to change us at the core of our being. He's going to take the core of who we are and put something different in us. The image of his son. So this is a prerequisite for being serious about life change. You've got to make a decision to let Jesus work in you based on his desires for you. Because he is our Lord. Not based on the person that we think we should be. And a lot of times who we think we should be is a good thing. But the only person who can be truly objective about who we think we should be is Jesus. So we have to let him speak to us like that. When you make areas of your life off limits to God, you actually flip the paradigm we introduced this whole talk on. You start to believe that you are the ultimate author of your salvation. You forget Jesus gave you the car. You and I forget we can't afford it. We're acting like the owner. We're essentially saying, no, salvation has nothing to do with me. But when it comes to what salvation looks like in my life, it has everything to do with me. I don't need you anymore, Jesus. I'm then going to make my faith look like me or whatever I want. You start acting like the owner. And consequently, you deny the right that you've already given Jesus to transform um, you into his image. And so you see that the, the point I'm trying to make here is that God loves us so much that at time he'll seek renewal in our areas of our lives, in your life, that you don't want him to touch. That's part of what it means to pursue Jesus as Lord. And here's kind of how we'll wrap up. Uh, I'll share with you, uh, whenever we talk about issues like this, I try to be transparent here. Um, for, for me, this area, I've talked regularly in this room about the challenge I've had with anger my whole life. Uh, this has always been my, my off-limits area. Uh, at least it was for a very long time. Uh, and then I noticed that, to a certain degree, kind of like that analogy I used about running into the street, I felt like there were times after I'd become a Christian, because again, prior to knowing Jesus, at least for me, anger was like the norm. It was how I, I was kind of trained in my life to deal with that. Most of my peers, just that's, that's what everybody did. And so conflict resolution or relational resolution was always connected to uh, winning arguments and at times closing your fists and winning fights. It was muscling yourself over another person. And, and anger was the norm. So when I became a believer... It was very clear there were times when I would, I would have an awareness that God would bring these things to my mind. But there were also times when I feel like he was kind of grabbing my shirt collar and saying, hey, man, you can't roll this way anymore. It doesn't work like this. And so if you were here in the first year of restoration, I shared with you a story. It was actually very, very important to me at that time because it was what happened right before we moved from New Orleans to Florida to plant restoration. And I'll share with you again. Um, it was an interesting story. It's a funny story, but a true story. Uh, my family and I, uh, we were driving on, if you've been to New Orleans, you'll be familiar with these streets, but on a, on a very large intersection called Veterans Boulevard. It's a huge east-west traffic artery that cuts through the whole center of the city. And it is packed with businesses and intersections and all kinds of stuff. So it's like Dun, Dunlawton times 10 is how you could describe it, right? Uh, really busy. Uh, and, and because of this, horrendous traffic and tons of road rage incidents. This just, just was not a fun place to drive, especially during uh, rush hour traffic. And so 
uh, one Friday evening, with all that in my head, one Friday evening, uh, during the peak of rush hour traffic, I had the bright idea of taking my wife and, at that point, my infant son, Aiden. If you've seen my son, he's 10 now. He's as big as me. But at this point, Aiden was still, like, in a car seat, like a little baby. And I took my wife. I thought, you know, we're having problems with our cell phone. Why don't we go to the Sprint store on Veterans Boulevard at the worst time of the day during all this rush hour traffic? This makes perfect sense. And even better yet, let's pack up the kid and, and take him down to see this. So we, we drive down there. And to get onto the boulevard, you, you have to fight your way into it. There's bumper-to-bumper traffic and gridlock. And so I pulled or attempted to pull on vets, is what we called it there. And I made a driving uh, – I had a, a, a judgment failure in my driving. I looked to the left of me. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. But I, I saw it was a clear lane, and I thought the lane was clear. But it actually was a turning lane. And so you know how that works. The turning lane turns, and then there's no clear lane here when you get to the other side. So I thought, hey, open lane, and I pulled into – a lane of traffic where there were cars everywhere. I, it's a miracle we did not get hit, but, um, but we did not. I didn't even realize what had happened. Uh, it was unbeknownst to me. I pulled into traffic, you know, just doing my thing, uh, thinking I was good to go. But uh, like 10 seconds later, I realized that was not the case. And the big reason for this was because the guy behind me that truly I accidentally cut off, he was blowing his horn and cursing at me. I mean, it looked like he was tap dancing on the hood of his car. And he, he managed to pass me. I don't know how he did it, but he managed to get up to the side of me. And he began throwing like every uh, hand gesture uh, no, known to man. I mean, it was like a ballet lay of of finger movements and gestures i didn't know how a hand could do that but both of them were doing it right so i'm watching this guy and he's like completely lambasting me and eventually he just goes off and at this point i'm okay because like i truly know i'm in the wrong here like i i was sorry i didn't mean to do it but it, it happened and there was nothing i could do about it and he drives on you know this kind of driving in the traffic so a quarter mile up the road um, something peeks my eye in the right side of the road. Um, and I notice uh, a, a vehicle that has stopped and a person standing in front of the car. And I just thought it was broken down traffic or something. But as soon as we got a little closer, I realized that it was actually the guy. And he was out of his car now, like wanting me to get to get out of my car. So I did what any of you would have done. I grabbed my wife and put her in front of me. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that at all. No, I, I, I look at this and and... And it's strange at first, but there's this place where my synapses connects and I realize what's happening here. And then this is when it happens. Um, there's a singular thought that crosses my mind. I recognize this is like this is the old world way of like dropping the glove. And this guy wants to like throw it out. And so I look at this guy and my thought here is like, I can take this dude. Like I look at him and I want to get out of the car and pummel him into the concrete. That's this is what's going on in my head. And I'm serious. I mean, I'm not going ballistic, but it's, it is on. It, it is like what I said earlier. That switch has been thrown in my head. But I managed to emotionally, for a very brief but intense period of time, shut all those switches off in darkness. And I knew it was like a flood of thoughts came into my head. I knew what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. I knew I was supposed to be telling myself, you know, blessed are the gentle and the meek. They will, they will inherit the earth. All of these things come into my mind. But I, just being frank, I wanted to meet him at the foot of the mountain at that moment. I was so not inclined to trust anything Jesus said. And I'm really sorry if you thought you were going to get some really profound, like, anger management uh, technique, like how an angel came to my shoulder and whispered into my ear. But none of that happened. What happened here is there was a brief moment um, where I was so overwhelmed that, that like, in a Hulk-like manner, the, the, old, the old self in me just started raging out. And, you know, afterwards, I got throttled by my wife, which was less, less gracious than Jesus did that day. But nonetheless, in that moment, here's what happens. There's a moment where I'm truly, like, losing control. But God 
if we understand what we've talked about today, God says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So he doesn't say that I need to figure out how to not be angry all the time. In fact, there's a great promise in this. In this moment, I genuinely believe God, God restrained me. He did. He, he almost glued my, seat, my, my rear end to, that, to the chair of the car. And I sat there. Once that I had settled, I couldn't even give you all the reasons, but I know that I did not get out of that car. And I did not compromise my integrity in that moment by, by doing or saying things to this guy. I was raging in every sense, but God restrained it. And shortly after, my heart and mind settled. And, and I began to think like God again. And that's when all the working part comes out. The process is there. I'm thinking, man, why? Why am I so angry at this dude? What, what's going on here? That, was, that, that is the root of anger. At least it's one of the challenges. You've got to figure out what causes the anger. What causes you to, to want to reciprocate that? What causes you to want to reciprocate anxiety and stress? And that day I learned something. And this is the last thing I'll say to you today. When it comes to life change, hear me here. Uh, Jesus can't be your assistant That's not what Philippians teaches us. He can't just be your life coach. Those are wonderful people in our life. But he's got to be more than just an advocate for you. He cannot just be a confidant. He can't be the person, a confidant, the person you go to after and say, hey, here's what happened, Jesus. What do you think? He can't just be your accountability partner uh, in in this moment. Uh, He's meant to be your all. In those situations, your true source of strength, when it comes to the places we really need to change, you, you have to know that Jesus is your ultimate source of strength. And there is a power in leading that way and knowing that he's ultimately your anger or whatever it is. It is he who promises to bring about the change. If we're willing to work out our salvation on this earth, even on the days when you can't live up to your concrete commitment. And that's the beauty of grace. Jesus promises to be for us in the moments we cannot be for ourselves what we need to be in him. Peaceable in this moment. So as we move towards response time, maybe a better question to ask ourselves instead of what would we change? If we could wish change into existence, what would it be? Maybe the better question is, since change is promised and expected from the words of Paul, who, who, I mean, there's a million verses we could look at in the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about this same thing. Since it's promised, the better question is, what is keeping us from changing? Because the hope you should leave this place with today is that Jesus has promised. He stands at the ready to bring change about in your life. He stands at the ready to bring himself about in your life. That's a very different statement. I can't change, or Jesus promises he will bring change about me. One leads to despair. The other leads to light at the end of the tunnel, a little bit of hope. And I would, I would encourage you to press into the light and the hope. Think on that this morning. As we close this today, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about your salvation? And, and what is it you're going to do about it, especially as we broach this subject over these next weeks? Father in heaven, thank you for, thank you for your son. And thank you for, again, another, another powerful teaching, I think, given to us by the Apostle Paul, which this is a guy who, just being frank, uh, this is a guy who had a lot of things to work on in his life. He's, in some senses, the greatest missionary in the New Testament, but he's also a person who struggles with the most things in life. And he's going to be very transparent about this with us later on in his writings. He's going to, he's going to show us that these things he's teaching us about uh, are things he's dealing with in his own life. And so I thank you, Father, for the humility of Christianity. I thank you, Father, for the fact that in Jesus we're on the same playing field. And I thank you, God, that that playing field is one steeped in love and grace and truth and mercy. And so our ask for you now is that as we move into this time of reflection and meditation, give us just a few minutes to think and to process this. We certainly will not have enough time in this room to think through all of this. But it is my prayer, Lord, that that the things you have showed our minds today, we would labor tirelessly in your strength this week to see renewal in those areas, God. Let us sit before you now and, and think about what you have shown us 
and ask God what our next steps are and what you would like us to be. Help us to work out our salvation, the great gift of grace, with fear and with trembling. God, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen.